I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. You're on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I mean to plant a flag in the sand for conscious, willful people to gather, organize, empathize, and capsize the established order of things. Our opposition? Team machine, team capitalism, team algorithm, team no team, I'm my own team. Being human is a team sport, so thanks for playing. Our guest today, one of my very best friends and first true teachers, Counterculture legend, Are You Serious, a.k.a. Ken Goffman, founding editor of Mondo 2000. Are You will help us evaluate the place of the counterculture in the digital landscape and join us in our search for hopeful human answers to the deadliest questions of our time. We are intervening on behalf of people. This is Team Human. don't want to talk long because I want to get right to our guest today, but let me share a passing thought I've had repeatedly over the last couple of weeks as the Russia inquiry escalates and implodes and the Trump administration begins flinging more accusations and tweets and distractions, no matter the social or political cost. My insight had nothing really to do with Trump at first. I was embroiled in one of those online battles on a mailing list of media and technology thinkers. The guy who runs the list is really smart, a true genius, but very opinionated and always ready to go on the attack. So to challenge one of his underlying assumptions means that he's going to jump on you like an alt-right troll on Hillary or a gamer gator on a feminist. I guess that's the same thing. But everyone on the list knows this, figuring it's worth cowering and acquiescing lest the central figure come after them. And slowly but surely, this means accepting and internalizing the guy's arguments. It's a version of the Stockholm Syndrome, I suppose, where captives eventually take on the perspectives of their captors. So I figured I'd buck the trend and ask ever so gently whether it might be possible that this list about digital media was falling prey to the biases of digital media itself, that divisive, polarized style of engagement that ends up too determinist, preventing the percolation of more nuanced perspectives. Humans, after all, are nuanced. And oh my God. God, the shit storm that little question generated was off the charts. My biography, my religion, even the description of Team Human on this site that was written by Stephen Bartolome was dragged into the conference as evidence of my unsuitability and inferiority. 
The only time I'd seen anything like that before was when a cult leader was attempting to prevent a disciple from leaving his tribe, and maybe a few times on 4chan. But what occurred to me is that we're in a similar position with our president. Like most people, I want to see his administration broken up, arrested for their collusion with the Russians to undermine our democracy, so discontent and promote national confusion and despair. And I can't help but get a little excited as Mike Flynn asks for immunity and other bombs begin to drop. But knowing what we already do about Trump, maybe we better be worried about what happens if we truly corner the guy. He's willing to invent a wiretapping scandal to distract from his taxes or a terrorist threat in order to push through an illegal immigration order. And those are minor threats. Trump is an internet troll with the world's biggest arsenal at his disposal. So imagine what he'd do if we really threatened his presidency. If they found out something truly impeachable or jailable, my guess is he wasn't really in on any of the Russia stuff. No, sure, he owes them money, but he's not really crafty enough to be leveraging Russian psyops consciously. They're playing him. You know, they're dropping breadcrumbs of fake stories like Obama's birthplace or wiretapping, knowing he'll pick them up. They're tailor-made bits of paranoia, perfect for Trump's mentality. But if more and more of his people get indicted and arrested his election itself put into question, or his business dealings reveal impeachable offenses, what do you think he's going to do? Go off quietly into the night? Or create whatever distractions are required to get us off the plot? And if he's already creating this much damage and confusion over questions of character or associates' connections to Russia and tax returns, imagine what he'd do if the press, the courts, or Congress really went after him. The metaphorical bombs could well become real ones. Imagine what a distraction that would be. And if there's a Stockholm syndrome that goes along with this, it's the, uh, you know, don't go after Big Daddy. Don't report the abuser because then we'll see his true wrath. And in this case, it's not imaginary and child services can't protect us. Now, I'm not saying stop, but proceed with caution and make what you do count. You're on Team Human, coming to you alive from the basement media squad at the Laboratory for Digital Humanism. Playing for us today, my friend and tour guide, Are You Serious? You know, for people that don't know us, I don't even know if you know that the first time I uh, came in contact with you and your work, it was like at the first Albert Hoffman Memorial Conference at this, I think it was in a giant Masonic building in Los Angeles. Timothy Leary had told me to go to it, I think, and must have been in the 80s, and a whole bunch of high frontiers were at that thing. You know, it was like Laura Huxley and, you know, I think Ram Dass or, you know, a bunch of the old original psychedelics crowd and some of the sort of early ecstasy, Bruce Eisner or Bruce Ehrlich, whatever his name was, that the the ecstasy guy and um, a bunch of different folks. But then there was high frontiers, which um, for me, and I'm sure for a lot of people of my ilk or generation, it was like... A, a calling card from the future. <laughs> it was yeah. this amalgamation of all these different things that I had been interested in and never connected, but all of a sudden they're all in the same place and they're all being declared part of the same this amalgamation of cultural, scientific, biological, cosmic, spiritual, pharmacological advances. I mean, what what did you see as the common thread? How did how did physics and math and drugs and music and culture and and transgender and and uh, cultural alchemy all end up in the same uh, considered part of the same potpourri of 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 cultural information? I, th I mean, I think it, it melded together in some ways. It just melded together in my head, and I assumed 
that there are other people out there like me. It's sort of like what Paul Krasner said about starting The Realist. He put it out to meet the other aliens. And so <laughs> I, th- this was this was a new generation of aliens. And I, I mean, I think it's very interesting that you found us amidst this crowd that uh, might be considered sort of crusty towards to a lot of people and might have been considered uh, pretty old and not connected to contemporary culture. But yeah, to me, it wasn't just, I mean, uh, there was the influence of Timothy Leary and Robert Anton Wilson, but it wasn't just the physics and the science and and the oncoming uh, digital age and uh, everything that, that you just mentioned, the new psychedelics as well. But it was also the fact that as somebody who was in his early mid twenties when punk came along and new wave came along, that I was a I was uh, charged and and adapted for a very sort of speedy hyper futuristic mentality by by that as well. Um, so I mean there was there was a vibe, but it, it, it's funny to me because I hear from some people, some twenty somethings who worked at Mondo, that High Frontier seemed really crusty in 60s and hippie to them. Um, so, I mean, you get, you, of course, you always get shot by, by both sides. But, uh, I mean, I, I think that there was just this amalgamation of uh, interests and curiosities and, and things going on at that point in time. And one could clearly see the uh, so-called digital revolution coming on and uh, one could be fairly optimistic about it at, at that time I, actually radically over optimistic yeah so I mean, it was just get it out there and, yeah. and meet other people who, who thought like me now when I started the magazine that the other people who came into it were much more into the psychedelics than they were into what I should have called postmodern art or uh, digital culture or futurism or anything like that. So there was a, a deep dive into uh, psychedelics much more than into uh, the other aspects that uh, we discussed at first. And then we really reversed fields entirely when we started Reality Hackers and then uh, Mondo 2000. So so I have to say well, that was one of the best times I ever had was that deep dive into into psychedelics. Well, I mean, the psychedelics culture of the late 80s, I mean, was different than computer culture or the others because, I mean, we were doing something illegal. You yeah. know, it was, right. it was almost... Well, no, there were some people in computer culture doing some things illegal. Yeah, that's true, too. You know, it felt like it was a, a subculture that for a long time, you know, people really needed to find the others, as Timothy, you know, yeah. told everybody. And I use as the sort of mantra for this show. There was a real need to find other ones. And when you did, it was like, oh, you take these things, too. You've seen what I've seen. You yeah. know, so... The mag high frontiers kind of more than high times because high times was so you know pot oriented. High frontiers really went the, ran the full gamut of hallucinatory experiences and kind of it was a flag in the sand saying yes there are others these are the these are your experiences. But yeah, you're right. As you turned into reality hackers and then eventually uh, Mondo 2000, it really became the the voice of you know this 21st century you know, post-television designer reality society. Yeah, the Jetsons on DMT, as uh, as Mark Derry uh, snarkily labeled it. Um, yeah. Yeah, and that wasn't a bad thing. I mean, and then luckily, I guess, it also finally a beautiful new culture came along with it, which was the early rave club kid culture, which helped give it an aesthetic that was a lot more pleasing to young people or relevant to young people than, you know, wavy gravy and uh, tie-dye t-shirts. That's true. Although, I, although I have to say, that's where I became a crusty myself because I, I, I'm never that enamored of the, of the musical style, and uh, uh, I would always be the one leaving at four in the morning rather than staying till dawn. But yeah, I mean, it was an incredible uh, flowering of a, a new kind of optimism, very reminiscent of late '60s hippie optimism. I mean, the the idea, the feeling that uh, we could change everything at once because now we had the technology and it was distributed all over the world and this sort of the idea of the good vibe and all that at that time that that was pretty amazing and everything did change at once but maybe not exactly as we thought you know i always blamed 
uh, you know, Wired magazine and the uh, investment ethos for changing the internet from an anything can happen, you know, new human potential movement into the same old, you know, expansion of capital through, you know, IPOs and digital companies. But I mean, what is it? it, it I hate to even term it like this, but what went wrong? You know, why didn't we get the everything changing at once for the human better that we were all imagining up in the Berkeley Hills in the in the Mondo 2000 living room? Well, you know, I, I think we thought abundance uh, would come faster, material abundance, perhaps, uh, as, as well as digital and uh, abundance of ideas and information and so forth, that all that stuff would would come together much more quickly and it would lead to a kind of collapse of the barriers of the turnstiles uh, between the stuff that people want that's replicable. And we thought that physical material was going to get become replicable much faster than it has, if it ever will. So you mean more like like a Star Trek replicator type thing more than 3D printers? You know, nanotech people were fantasizing that nanotech was going to happen very fast. I mean, even Al Gore, through a, through a secondhand conversation I learned, was, you know, dreaming of, a, was thinking, worried that the singularity was going to happen during his term as president. And obviously neither of those things happened, you know. Yeah. I, and I mean, capitalism was was there and it was it was waiting to go on online and, you know, it, it, kind of crapped up a lot of things that performed some services in some ways as well. And, you know, that's the, the uh, conundrum that uh, we're, we're stuck with now. Yeah. I mean, it feels as if capitalism is much more suited for the net than humans or culture are. You know, capitalism's abstract of, of the three factors of production, you know, land, labor, and capital. Capital's the only one that can expand infinitely. <laughs> it's That's not true. real. Yeah, we, we don't even need to have any humans left. Uh, for, for uh, One of the things that a lot of the techno-optimists, uh, more towards the post-wired period, the late 90s and on into the 21st century, you know, would talk about how vast the stock market would grow. I mean, that was the the long boom, you know, instead of mm. talking about a vast increase in intelligence or material wealth or all these other factors. If, if you go back and, and read that Wired issue, so much emphasis was just on how high the stock market would grow. This abstraction would just, you know, expand unto infinity. And I mean, to, to some extent, I almost got sold. I was like ready for the trickle down. You know, if it gets big enough, then everything everything is going to be given away for free to everybody. Uh, or at least that was the, uh, you know, the, the sort of capitalist theory of, of uh, post-scarcity. Um, and that theory is still being out there. Uh, yeah, exactly. I was ready to open my mouth, lean my head back and <laughs> get the trickle down too. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I finally got a job and I was well paid and I thought, okay, you know, and then bam, it, it, just as soon as I uh, was ready to lighten up about the whole thing, it, it crashed. Yeah. Well, and part of that's because, I mean, we weren't given ownership. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's the problem with, with capitalism, the way it's currently configured anyway. You yeah. know, we didn't own these networks, so they were really just extracting more value than they were than they were giving us. So, I mean, do you think it's, it's mainly this sort of capitalism being able to infuse the net so completely? Or do you think it was that we weren't really ready culturally or on a consciousness level to do what the net was suggesting to really, you know, connect with other people on this new level. Yeah. I mean, you know, when you're talking about counterculture people or post counterculture people or psychedelic people or, or, or whatever, I mean, we, we're sort of the other 1% and the large group out there of, uh, you know, the masses, so to speak, uh, came online and the uh, the coming together of the of the global mind or or what have you it did not prove to be so delightful as you know John Perry Barlow or or whomever might have hoped and in fact what what we realize is that uh, uh, disembodied minds particularly familiarity breeds 
not just contempt, but, you know, probably death threats <laughs> from moment to moment. You know, we, we hate the, you know, with Sartre, Sartre said, uh, hell, hell is other people. And I think uh, hell is other people's tweets and Facebook posts and so forth. I know. And I they know. just so irritate the-, the crap out of all of us you know, mutually. I know. Part of me, part of me thinks, you know, back to the what you were talking about earlier, that it's almost as if internet users had some kind of a psychedelic training before they went online. Yeah. <laughs> they would be better prepared for the kind of social interaction. It could help, although I mean, there's certainly plenty of intolerant uh, psychedelic users on online as as well. And I, I, I mean, I mean, just in terms of people believing bizarre stuff, I mean, that's something. Uh, that's a whole other discussion of one of the consequences of the of the psychedelic revolution that uh, I find far more irritating and consequential, whereas I found it benign and amusing uh, in in the past. Well, it's interesting. I mean, I remember you and I kind of bonded again uh, twenty years after we met, or whatever it was, after nine uh, eleven, and some of the more extreme conspiracy theories were going around. Yeah. Uh, you know, that we both took a lot of heat for, for not buying into them. You know, I yeah. wrote a piece where I was arguing that, you know, this is these are the disinformants who are spreading these these stories because they're trying to keep us from seeing the simple basic truth of what right. happened, which is horrible enough. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> but it feels like that then, you know, 9-11 and the acceleration of conspiracy theory that it spawned combined with the Internet and the ability to, you know, to connect anything to anything else has yielded this whatever you want to call this this bizarre world of ontological relativism that we're in today where people can be so easily manipulated and and drawn into these rabbit holes of false truths yeah i'm sorry i blew up consensus reality man uh (laughs) yeah operation mindfuck was too successful um People are, take responsibility for it. Uh, Do you think the counterculture did this? Yeah, I, probably. Yeah, I mean, I, I think. I mean, if if you actually, if you follow some of the ideological discourse from a couple of people who are really influential in Russia with Putin, Operation Mindfuck is applied to amoral raw power and political strategy. And, you know, I mean, there was a guy on on Facebook for a while, I I think he was authentic, who was sort of, at least in some ways, part of uh, Putin's mind trust. And he was totally into Leary and Operation Mindfuck. And he's always talking about how everybody knew about all that stuff. I mean, that's just one one aspect of it. But yeah, I I think the net certainly contributed to uh, this situation where people could get sort of trapped in their own reality bubbles and only hear from the people that they want to hear from and, and see the things that they want to see. But yeah, I mean, I, I think that one of the consequences of postmodernism and of relativistic thinking and so forth is that uh, people who are uh, less sophisticated or mentally troubled can take that in uh, some some very troubling directions. I mean, there used to be a counterculture. No, I mean, not necessarily an organized counterculture, but right. at least some kind of a coherent counterculture yeah. to engage with these kinds of issues and, and push culture ahead. I mean, you know, your book, Counterculture Through the Ages, really shows the, the not just the styles of counterculture through the ages, but the function of mm-hmm. counterculture through the age. And I'm wondering, is is a counterculture even possible in a networked age? You know, or maybe is is humanity itself the counterculture in a in a digital environment? Yeah. I mean actually it, if you go back and look at the book, even then, when the book came out in two thousand four, I said, is counterculture still counter anymore, uh, both at the beginning and at the end of the book. Yeah, I mean, they're, without a consensus culture to play off of, and I think I think in, in many ways to parasite, parasitize off of mutually, and in many ways that was a, help, a healthy thing. The discussion of counterculture in some ways in the contemporary context becomes sort of moot. You have a lot of people going around now. There's a very popular video by some guy saying conservatism is the new counterculture. 
very popular meme among alt-right and, and all those kinds of people. And I, I mean, my response mainly is that it's moot. I'm not that interested in bragging about being counterculture anymore, except, you know, maybe when it, when it comes to music or something like that, be outrageous within that context. But within within the context of politics and culture more broadly, I'm interested in what I can say and do that contributes to survival and, you know, advancement. And I'm not going to worry about whether it's counterculture or not. Well, and as I, you know, as I observe you, I don't look at you as counterculture at all. I mean, you're pro-culture. And that's right. Yeah, <laughs> it's the, I'm pretty it's pro-culture. the other guys that are counter. <laughs> yeah, I know. I guess Terrence McKenna said culture is not your friend, but I never, I never really, uh, I never really followed that uh, that argument. No, we're all in a culture. I mean, I mean, he must have had a, a it was some, some logic. To, it was some far yeah. out thing, uh, being virally occupied, which which is a legitimate point. So now your your music, you know, your writing and production and performance has been sort of weaving through this all along. I mean, before High Frontiers, you were you were in upstate New York in a in a band. Yeah, it's frust it's frustrating because you know once you get uh, pigeonholed into one area. Particularly with music, people people don't want to know. The actor who tries to form a rock band is is treated to a great deal of snark and so forth. Yeah, well, you defy anybody's expectations of, of what you're supposed to do. Yeah. You know, even you write a book, you know, one degree different from the one you wrote before. And it's like, wait a minute, you've radically changed. Yeah, <laughs> like, no. yeah, exactly. Well, that's, you know, that's Adorno. And, you know, as, if, as long as we're cultural products, we're supposed to be predictable and the same. <laughs> it's right. like you're not allowed yeah. to do something yeah, yeah. else. But you're, you're, how, how do you, how, if you could trace your kind of your music interests, you know, from then through Mondo Vanilli to now, I mean, that would be, I think that'd be interesting. Yeah. I mean, a lot of what happens with me is by accident, both lyrically and, and musically. And I think that's true for a lot of people. It's a question of who's around, who you hook up with. I don't know, the, the punk vibe has always been there. And it's this place where I can go where I don't have to write essays. You know, and you started, I, how old were you when you were in that first band? I was 29 when I was in Party Dog. I actually had recording situation before that in the mid 70s uh, which unfortunately the the tapes are gone i finally gained the confidence to step up to a microphone at about uh, 23 i mean the, the through line with with it all is kind of <laughs> you play with whoever you can hook up with you know I, I i never tried to do something that was edgy in the same way that mondo 2000 was i think maybe mondo vanilli kind of ended up being that way Mondo Vanilli was meant as a kind of a cultural satire of the what, uh, you know, there was the Millie Vanilli scandal, I yeah. guess, for young people who don't remember. It was a band that got caught, you know, that they're lip syncing and there's other people are singing the music for them. Yeah. And then so Mondo Vanilli came out, which was kind of a hybrid of, as I understood it, Mondo 2000 and and the the sort of the Millie Vanilli media virus yeah. joke. So, um, I mean, I'm, as, sitting, I'm sitting in a coffee shop and I'm... Uh, Reading the San Francisco Chronicle about uh, Millie Vanilli being being roasted alive for lip syncing, and I'm right in the middle of a period where people are just making a huge fuss about virtual reality, and so I'm thinking, first of all, Millie Vanilli sucks totally, so that's one so what, and they shouldn't have won any awards, and then the other so what is so what if they're lip syncing? Why go through the cliche? of uh, having a live band on stage. Why do cliched videos with people holding guitars? So the idea was to form a virtual reality band, which was very premature in ter terms of the kind of technology that uh, was available at that time. Uh, and then basically, I mean, Scrappy Duchamp and I, we'd been writing music together for a while, actually. And it was, like I said, it was sort of poppy. It was a little techno, but it was sort of poppy. And I, I just thrusted a bunch of industrial music and electronica and rave music on him. And I said, you know, figure this stuff out and let's write some new songs for Mondo Vanilli. So he took his influences, which are more like sort of somewhere at the intersection of Brian Wilson and Frank Zappa, you know, mm -hmm. and then filtered that through the industrial music that he hated. <laughs> and we came mm -hmm. up with uh, Mondo Vanilli. 
I know. And now, I mean, now there are virtual bands. You know, there's that, yeah. that, that touring Japanese pop girl who's, you know, you, they throw a little smoke on the stage and you get a, a, a 3D avatar in performance doing all sorts of stuff. Yeah. So, so I guess it's a, it was, well, it was more than a thought experiment, but it's, uh, now it's, it's real. <laughs> yeah. It's realized. It's terrib- and then, terribly real, yes. And now, now today you have new music. Yeah, yeah. I've been uh, getting lyrics around to a, a lot of different people. And this is sort of the start of uh, working with a bunch of different people on what I hope might be an album, a eclectic album of various styles of, of music. The early ones, particularly the two, uh, Punching a Nazi and Be My Valerie Solanus, sort of in the style, I'm told it's in the style of 1980s or 1990s uh, industrial. Uh, let's play Let's play a clip of that, Punching a Nazi. Punching a Nazi, Albert Camus wouldn't bring back the Stasi. All right, so who is who is that performing? Okay, that's uh, Charles Veretti. He calls himself Creosote Cowboy. Uh, then there's a guy who calls himself Pizza T. His main band is Friends with the PH. And I've done s- several things for it with him. He actually did a remix of a song uh, called President Mussolini Makes the Planes Run on Time, uh, which was written right after the election of Ronald Reagan, but which we reapplied to the campaign and then the election of, of Donald Trump with appropriate samples right. and so forth. So the the punching a Nazi song though is is a, a reference specifically to that guy who punched the Nazi during the uh, television interview. Yeah, I mean that's what that's what brought it to mind. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, although I mean I, if you read the lyrics and listen to the song, you know the the feeling is much more the Ramones than uh, you know some some hardcore political group. I mean, to, to me, it was one of those rare cases where I actually was hearing another lyricist in my head. I was hearing Joey Ramone. I was hearing Beat on the mm-hmm. Brat in my uh, head when I when I wrote the lyrics. Yeah. So I, I, I give myself an out in, in terms of the song being ambiguous enough that I'm not telling people to go out and punch a Nazi. I'm certainly not going to stop them <laughs> if they decide yeah. to, but... Uh, yeah, I think so, some people are afraid of the song because they, they think it's advocacy of violence. Just as anything you've done, people would think everything that you're talking about, you're advocating rather than yeah. looking, talking, wondering. I mean, you can marvel at something without uh, uh, endorsing it, but it's it's really yeah. tricky today. I should also mention the uh, the vocalist on that song, uh, I, but I'm not remembering her stage name, but her name is, is Kate. Uh, who added some of the vocals to that to both those songs to uh, that and be my Valerie Solanas mm. uh, could be the least commercial song ever just in terms of the names that are dropped in the song are only <laughs> recognizable to intellectuals and people with some idea of history let's play a drop of uh, uh, be my Valerie Solanas So that's not a commercial hit. It's not that At least not yet. But I mean, you're you're like, God, I don't even know what to say. It's almost like you're a, 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 whatever the 21st century equivalent of a, of a Frankfurt group theorist. (laughs) I I, I would, I would 
I would go for that. I would I would hope that uh, whatever I put together could be uh, understood within that context. Definitely. Well, it, it does seem it's about the cultural production of, Absolutely. of itself. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, this goes back. I mean, it goes all the way back, I'm sure, to everything I wrote, but it goes specifically back to a song by Mondo Vinelli called Love is the Product, you know, which, which is very explicitly, you know, the medium is the message, money makes it dance, love is the product, the joke is in your pants. Okay, so there's a cheap joke at the end of it, but it's still, you know, that's that's what it's about, yeah. Right. It's funny, I was, uh, I'm just kind of putting out a book proposal now, and of course my agent wants me to go with a major publisher you know so we get in advance and all yeah and um i keep thinking about walter benjamin saying you know the the, the means of production are the are the product you know yeah <laughs> you can't separate your content from the means of production otherwise you know every record is just selling more plastic and every book is just selling more you know bertelsmann stock and um i'm, I'm finally at the point where i can see oh my gosh that's actually true you know and i i worry sometimes are we how can we create culture without, you know, feeding the machine more than we starve it? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I try not to be too purist about things, as, as you know. Um, but, I mean, that's that's always been there. And I, actually, with, with Mondo Vanilli, uh, we had a philosophy of authentic inauthenticity. And we contrasted that with inauthentic authenticity. And we <laughs> Had the idea that, look, Bruce Springsteen, you know, I like Bruce, but, you know, he is someone who comes to you through media. He's he's a a mediated piece of abstract authenticity. So, you know, we wrote this philosophy. I was embracing David Bowie and Andy Warhol and people like that and contrasting them favorably to uh, people who had the pretense of authenticity. I don't, I don't think that's necessarily what I'm trying to do right now. You know, I think all the cultural codes are pretty much totally scrambled at this point. Mm. You know, I'd be happy to go out with uh, somebody with a guitar and, and sing sing live and, and enjoy the, the, the real authentic experience or whatever. But, uh, yeah, I kind of take all that stuff as, as it comes. I mean, the part that's amazing to me, and, and I mean this as a compliment, not as a diss, is – is uh, how hard it is for you to actually even personally uh, survive and thrive in the current cultural environment. You know, so here you are, one of, you know, the, the, I don't even need to put it on a rating scale, but one of the major movers and thinkers of this time. And I know on a daily basis, you're thinking about how am I going to make ends meet? Is there a job around? Is there money around? Is there a gig that I can grab to get by, you know, these next three, four weeks? Um, that seems to me not only profoundly unjust, but but strange. Do you know, do you know what yeah, I mean? It is, it is strange. Yeah, yeah. You know, I never knew what the, what the key was, why Mondo 2000 gained a, a mass audience and other things didn't gain a, a mass audience that were that were equally deserving. You know, it, it hit a cultural moment and hit a cultural spot. In contrast with Wired, it hit the spot too soon. Uh, but but for us, it, we hit a sweet spot at at a particular moment. But I've never been able to really quite figure out, you know, what makes people go and purchase something. People will like something, but what makes them go and, and purchase something? That, I don't know. But yeah, I mean, I, I'm not sure why my analysis of culture doesn't you know bring the boys out into the yard so to speak uh, you know but at, at some point there's certainly some exhaustion on my part I, I don't write essays frequently or to some extent ever because uh, I'm not getting I'm not getting paid for it and I don't feel like doing it yeah. and I enjoy writing the lyrics more I just I love doing the lyrics but even there I don't feel a sense of completion until the stuff starts uh, being listened to, which is still an issue. So uh, thanks, <laughs> thanks for having me on. <laughs> well, I know at least we'll get the, the five or ten thousand people that listen to this will have yeah. at least been been force fed some uh, high nutrition musical 
<laughs> musical information. But some of the last stuff that you were writing about, you know, commercially was, and it was early for that too, was, you know, extropianism and, yeah. uh, and transhumanism. And uh, although the publications you were writing for seemed, you know, stridently extropian, I always sensed a, a uh, you were you you kind of kept transhumanism at arm's length as you wrote about it, weren't you? Yeah, totally. I mean, I, that brand has really been poisoned, I think, uh, almost completely at this point uh, by people like Peter Thiel. This guy, Robert Mercer, who uh, has been shown was the big money behind Trump, is uh, uh, a life extensionist and a more and immortalist and so forth. As uh, the, the bad guys from a lot of cyberpunk novels you know, or, or the complicated, uh, weird guys, at least, that are, you know, sort of going to the forefront of, of that brand or that idea. It is weird. I think it's hard for people to realize that. I mean, so it's not just Kurzweil, you know, who who might be misguided in terms yeah. of wanting to upload his consciousness to a silicon wafer. It's guys like, right, like Theo, who you don't get the sense that they're hoping to uh, usher humanity through this strange attractor at the end of time into the next reality, but themselves and a couple of their wealthy yeah. friends and maybe a few models. <laughs> Actual vampires. Yeah, very strange. It's funny because when I was doing that stuff, when I, you know, I, I did H Plus Magazine because I was hired to do it, which I was always very direct about if I, if I spoke. I always put myself in a position of uh, having an ambiguous attitude towards this. And having been hired for something that at least was interesting. So this is mm -hmm. interesting, and I know about it. And there are aspects of it that I find or found helpful, but I don't have a commitment to it. And it was understood that that was who I was, and that was the situation. It's to the credit of the people who were running the H-plus group at that time that they wanted that, actually. And then I, you know, I, I sold the book. Uh, to mm. a publisher about transhumanism and the singularity. And, and I snuck a fair bit of snark into that, at the same time informing people about technologies that might seem promising and about the, the different people and groups that, that were involved in that. And one of the things that, I mean, at that time, and that was just, I don't know, three years ago or something like that, there was a real wave within the transhumanist culture of people who were liberal and even left sort of objecting to how transhumanism was perceived, particularly in Europe. And I, I have a feeling that's been overwhelmed because that the, the people who are being attracted to those ideas are being attracted by very aggressive people with either libertarian or, or other types of right-wing views. Right, because, I mean, transhumanism no longer seems like it's about humanity or human civilization transcending its current situation, but a few select individuals buying their way out of this situation and then watching the rest of us collapse in, in climate change. Yeah. <laughs> and I wonder, from your perspective, and maybe this is a good, a good place to close, particularly because I'm, well, maybe you won't be as optimistic as I'm I'm hoping you would be, but <laughs> as someone who has, I know you're not a futurist, but you've, uh, uh, you know, accurately watched the horizon. Are you hopeful about our state? I mean, I've got a 12 year old daughter I'm thinking about and, uh, gosh, I'm glad she's had 12 interesting years, but I don't know what's ahead. What, where, what do you think is coming and what's, what, what can we as, as a minority, culture of humans uh, really do to either uh, navigate or steer this thing? Yeah, I, I, I have to say that by any, any period of optimism that I've gone through is, is pretty well collapsed, you know, with, with presence of, of the Trump administration and just, I mean, the, the level of disinformation and confusion and, of course, the, the very real problems uh, that are likely to occur with with the climate that we don't have systems or or ways of thinking about it or ways of living that are prepared to uh, to deal with that I mean the, the only way I can be optimistic is by going back to technology again I mean I don't I don't really I don't really see 
an alteration in consciousness of, you know, reaching enough of 7 billion people or, or however many there are. I don't see a uh, great kind of politics coming together on a mass scale worldwide. So, you know, the, the bigger problems like global warming and, and so forth have to be dealt with by clean energy, certainly. Uh, and I'm not sure. I mean, it might take some, some very scary technological hack to mm. uh to some sorts of geoengineering yeah, yeah, which dropping would, which iron I, filings into the which oceans. i'm totally afraid of and, and well, me and, too we and, can't even and, give penicillin and, to someone you yeah, know I without mean, side my, effects i mean my my immediate politics of that is to oppose it completely but you know then again when somebody asks me if there's any hope whatsoever uh for a future that uh isn't pretty dire I go to I go to uh, climate change, and that's really the one that I I can't understand or I think of a fix for, you know, um, and and so you know I I hate to I hate to leave it on a on a downer note, but uh, that's that's well not- it's not a downer note if uh, if it gets people thinking about you know, the reality of the situation and that, you know, yes, we get to have more fun if we just clean up the planet a little bit first and we can go back to some really good deep play. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I do think, you know, that the abundance might be, might be still plausible. Some combination of the kind of uh, localism that you've been advocating, but also with evolutions of things like nanotechnology and so forth. You know, I'm not. I'm not completely pessimistic about whether this stuff will yeah. work, and if they work, can they be used for good purposes? I'm fairly per- pessimistic about that right now. Uh, yeah, I guess you know. I'm thinking that if the smartest people who are developing these technologies thought of the collective rather than the individual, you know, if they yeah. thought in terms of how are we going to keep this civilization going rather than how am I going to insulate myself from yeah. the impending collapse? I mean, I think, uh, I think a lot of people do. I mean, a lot of people, you know, even, even in the mainstream of transhumanism, people like Peter Diamandis and, and so mm-hmm. forth, you know, they are, they are thinking broadly about how uh, this stuff can make life here good for everybody and how it can be distributed and they don't have very strong politics around it right i think as things get more dire a lot of a lot of those types of people are also thinking at the same time how can i save myself and my family and and close myself off from from the consequences of uh, of what seems to be about to occur i mean somebody like ray kurzweil will say that you can have another you can have other events like World War II, you can have major events, but the singularity will still come. You know what I'm saying? It's, it's right. like he can show on a chart how it didn't stop this rise, this doubling of uh, information. Right. And if, uh, well, and if we program the machines right, then once the singularity comes, then they're all going to make sure we take care of ourselves and one another. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, we'll be we'll make, we, we'll make good pets. I, I always thought that, that I always thought that song was by Perry Farrell was about robots, but I think he uh, wrote it about aliens actually. Yeah, oh, that'd be cute though. Worst case, we're pets. If they take care of us, then we'll get to play. Yeah, I, all right. I'm well, with it. well, I want to thank you for uh, for spending this time with me. And yeah, uh, it's been fun. For all of your uh, uh, friendship and and guidance over these years, uh, I know a person with a, a moniker like "Are you serious?" You wouldn't think is uh, the one of the the steadiest and surest hands um, to guide through a uh, uh, the chaos that's been this last twenty years. But but you certainly have been, and uh, my life wouldn't be the same. Well, I think it's um, the only possible response, actually. <laughs> Exactly. All right, man. It's been fun talking to you. You've been on Team Human, coming to you alive from the Basement Media Squad at the Laboratory for Digital Humanism at Queens College. Our guest today was Are You Serious? You can find out more about Are You Serious and his music 
at areyouserious.bandcamp.com. Follow him at Steal This Singularity on Twitter, Steal This Singularity. And go to teamhuman.fm where you can find links to Are You Serious' songs, the songs of his that we played on the show today, some of his essays and writings, and ways to contact him and get involved. Team Human is an entirely listener and and speaker-supported program. We welcome any contributions or recurring ones at teamhuman.fm where you can also find out about our guests and ways to get involved and ways to find the others. The show is produced by Stephen Bartolome. Stephen here. Thanks for listening to today's show. A shout out to all our friends out there connecting through Meetup. You can start your own Team Human Meetup at meetup.com. Thanks to Zago who designed our logo. If you're enjoying the show, please pass it on and share rating over at iTunes or your favorite podcast platform. My name is Stephen Bartolome, and I'm on Team Human. And I'm Douglas Rushka. Thanks so much for listening to Team Human this week. If you've got friends, associates, enemies who should join Team Human, please let them know about the show. The more of us there are, the better team we've got. This is Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.